the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is part two of our story uh, about the time so many people in New England, for not invalid reasons, thought that their relatives were turning into vampires and chasing down the living from beyond the grave. That's our guest super producer, Lowell Brilliante, returning. Wow, did you just kiss like two fingers and then put it up in the sky? Okay, nice. Then we also want to shout out our super producer, Max Williams. On Adventures, returning soon, as is my trusty co-host, Noel Brown. Wait, Ben, you might be saying, you're doing this show without a co-host? Ha ha! No, actually, uh, we were very fortunate to be joined again with our returning special guest, the creator of Ephemeral. Uh, you know him, you love him, longtime listeners. You've heard him on the show before. It is Alex Williams. Alex, this is your fourth time on this show. And I'm broadcasting live from the bottom of my tomb. Yes, yeah, yeah, which I got to say, you sound great. It, it is really nice and dead down here. It's got some good soundproofing. <laughs> it's dead on a couple levels, right? So, Alex, previously, you and Lowell and I were talking about the context that led to something called the New England Vampire Panic. Folks, if you haven't heard that phrase before, if you haven't heard part one of the show, uh, just go ahead, pause this, listen to part one. We'll wait for you. Okay, wait, how long? It was like 40 minutes or something. About 40 minutes. Okay. Yeah, you want to go get some a, deep? Yeah. All right, let's just. Okay. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> God, that was a great episode. No, it was. That really. Uh, but I, we saved the best stuff. And by which I mean the most horrible, depressing 
depraved, tragic, exciting stuff. Right. That's part of why we decided to put this into two episodes, folks. So for the for those of us in the crowd who are maybe a little bit squeamish or, yeah, maybe maybe don't react super well to um, a, a somewhat explicit uh, descriptions of some disturbing things, this may not be the episode for you. We just wanted to do a little disclaimer. Uh, Alex, you have in particular dug into some dug into some uh some visceral descriptions of what's happening but folks as you know if you were listening to part one of this podcast people in new england driven to desperate acts due to the apparently inexplicable deaths of people in their communities began attempting to well successfully exhuming and disinterring the corpses of their loved ones in an attempt to end their careers as vampires. That's what they thought they were doing, right? Yeah, so basically, what? We've got lulls in the ground. You're in my house, Ben. Uh, but I'm ailing. And you're ailing. I've tried everything else. Mm-hmm. The, you know, my village friend says, you know, you should really dig up Lowell and see what his body looks like. Because there's a chance that he is exercising some kind of will, maybe some spectral power, and and, and is the one causing... Ben to still be sick. Mm-hmm. And so maybe late one night, uh, we go and dig up Lowell and we see what kind of state the body was in. That was what people would do first. Right. Now, if it's the situation where you've been buried in the winter time, your body's not going to compo- decompose very quickly. New England winter is very harsh, very, very cold. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they couldn't even get the bodies in the ground. They were doing these ab- above ground tombs things. Right. But apparently, yeah. So if if the corpse was exhumed and they weren't uh, they were in good shape, that was a bad sign. Yes, yeah, and there would be descriptions, or you know, if you if you haven't seen a decomposing body before, then it's very understandable that someone passed by one every day on the way to work. Right. Well, we are in an interesting neighborhood, and you have a fascinating commute. You know, you can just take the belt line. <laughs> you don't have to go through that morgue. Okay. But, but yeah, the, the point stands. If you are unfamiliar with death and decomposition, then you might look at someone who's been buried in the winter, look at their corpse, and think, ah, uh, that guy doesn't look all the way dead. <laughs> he just winked at me. <laughs> he just winked at me. Or it seems like the, you know, the common myth of the, the fingernails and the hair, quote-unquote, growing yeah. just because the skin is retracting. I literally learned that today. Yeah. I. Yeah. I was totally a person that thought that they kept growing forever. And I, I liked that idea. And a little piece of me died with, with, with the knowledge that that's not true. Right, right. That's, but that, it does very much, if you've ever seen it, it does look like people's fingernails are still growing. And so you would think my good friend, my family member Lowell, has been clearly turned into a vampire and is operating. Look at his fingernails. Look at, there, there was the other, um, other descriptions about this or similar situations point to things like ruddy cheeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they looked they looked well fed and things like that. Uh, so we do we have a good example of a story like this? Let's maybe go to the Brown family. That's I mean that's that's the best example there is. In, in Noel's in Noel's honor, let's go to the Brown family. Right. I imagine they're not related, but let's go. Well, first of all, there was Noel Brown, <laughs> right? Famous, famously vampiric. No, no, no. Okay, so we're talking like um, this story really begins in the 1880s. 
Father George Brown, Mother Mary Eliza Brown, and then daughters Mary Olive Brown and Mercy Lena Brown. You got all that, Ben? Yeah. They had a son, too, Edwin Brown. Edwin, yes. He probably had a clever middle name that just hasn't trickled down to us. It was probably (laughs) Spider-Man. The original? It's a very common name at this time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And what, they lived in um, Exeter, Rhode Island in the 1890s. Exeter was kind of a ghost town then. Mm. Um, They called it deserted, Deserted Exeter. It was agrarian. It was a border town. There was really not much going on. The Civil War had sort of ravaged it. Population was less than 1,000 people. So people noticed when others took sick. Yeah, because it is it is one of those small communities where everybody does know everybody. For sure. It's not, it's not easy to keep a secret there. Uh, and in the historical record, we know that over time, Mary Brown— and Mary Olive Brown, the daughter, and Mercy Lena Brown were, you would say, growing sickly. They were taking ill. They were doing um, worse, it seemed, every day. Whatever had a grasp of them, which we now know as consumption, uh, wasn't the off-and-on-again type. It was active. At least it was the active kind for the two Marys, the mom and the daughter. It wasn't until, I believe, 10 years later that Mercy passed away, and she did have the tuberculosis that went dormant and then became active again. The doctors thought they knew what had happened. The doctors thought they had a rational explanation, but citizens, what few there were in Exeter at the time, had their own theory. They had their own belief and I believe it's after Mercy, after Mercy dies, then the husband, George Brown, is still alive, right? George Brown was uh, really not susceptible to tuberculosis. He lived until 1922. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it's a tragic life that he's lived. Yeah, he definitely did that one where he watched everyone and they loved die. Yes. Horribly around yeah. him. And he did everything he possibly could, even things that he didn't believe in and felt completely uncomfortable with. He did everything in his power and it all failed. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Yeah, because his after his daughters and his spouse die, his son, Edwin Spider-Man Brown, also falls ill. And it's, the, it's his last child that he has. So you describe it perfectly, Alex. George does something that in normal times he would never imagine himself doing. What is that? So it's 1892. George Brown lost his wife 10 years ago, his daughter, Mary Olive Brown, nine years ago. And now he's lost his daughter, Mercy Lena Brown. Yep. There are a lot of names, but I'm, I'm doing my best to keep them straight. And those, you know, those Puritans reuse the same names over and over. Sure. Yeah. You do the Salem Witch Trials, it gets very confusing. <laughs> um, anyways, he's got three women in his family in the grave and his son Edwin is sick. They sent him out to Colorado Springs, which was a really popular place for um, sanitarium. The dry air is supposed to be good um, for, for your tuberculosis. Uh, I would love for someone to send me to Colorado Springs. <clears throat> <laughs> and so his, his son is, he doesn't want to lose the last member of his family, obviously. He doesn't know what to do. He's in that situation that we described and no one is sort of an official capacity, the doctors, the town officials, the clergy, no one's really got an answer for him. But there's sort of, you know, unofficial voices in, in the community that suggest that perhaps it is, you know, one of the dead family members' spirit preying on his living son. Right. Yeah, and people are, people have a horse in the race here, and it's their own survival, because they're thinking, you know, if this is some kind of supernatural situation, then what's going to happen when they're done with the Brown family? This creature, this entity is going to come for someone else. So, and this also comes from Michael Bell, so they say to George Brown, they say, look, this is serious, and it's not just your son on the line. It's not just you on the line. It is everyone in Exeter. All 942 of us. <laughs> All of us, yeah. And, in, you know, spread out different ways, but obviously 
travel isn't a problem for these vampires unless there's running water and a couple of other superstitious uh, caveats. But yeah, people are not joking. You know, it's not a prank. They are seriously considering this an existential threat. So this is weird because from what I understand, Alex, George Brown himself didn't really buy the idea, did he? Everything that I've read claims that he was he didn't want to be a part of it. Basically, the solution that people have been using back into the 10th century or so for when you've got a vampire exercising its will from beyond the grave like this is you open up the tomb, you dig up the coffin, you crack that sucker open, you look at what's going on in there. If there's anything fishy, you mutilate the corpse. Right. And Ritualistically. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways. Um, they really seem to to vary in the time and place that you're in. And even just within New England in this period of 100 or so years, it sort of mattered where you were. Like Rhode Island, where the Brown family was, was more spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it t- tended to be more just kind of an individual family gathering to open up the cough, open up the graves and, and mutilate the corpses. Places like Vermont, they tended to do it as a public spectacle. Vermont, very tight, closer living. And and literally, you'd have like town officials and clergy and stuff in there, you know, desecrating the graves in a sort of ceremony. But take it all the way back to Europe. It seems to me, and I'm sure that there's many shades of gray to this, but the, the most common things to do were to like bind the feet of the corpse with thorns run a stake through its heart, maybe stake it down to the earth so it couldn't get up. Put something in its mouth. Behead it. Right, and then turn the head facing down. Right. Sometimes in New England, they would literally just dig it up and flip the corpse over. Mm-hmm. They might uh, rearrange the parts. The skull and crossbones comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Our pal Michael Bell I, has identified something like 80-plus um, graves that were exhumed uh, or thought to be exhumed from this period. And he suspects that there's like at least a hundred more. But the skull and crossbones comes up a lot. What bones would you use for the cro- for the crossbones, Ben? What bones would I use or what bones are generally used? Both. Oh, uh, for me, I guess, you know, I think it would be neat if it were the forearms and and, and the whole hand, the whole mm, skeleton I hand. Like yeah, like yeah. But I think most people probably would just find two long bones, right? So you would just maybe a thigh bone, maybe a maybe a thigh bone, maybe something cool from the arms, one of the limbs. A rib cage would look wonky, you know. Um, that's that's just my take. You know what my favorite bones are? The funny bone? <laughs> I don't remember all their names. There's, there's like three little bones in your ear. Oh, yeah. The yeah, hammer, yeah. the anvil, and the... Uh, the kumquat. No, ah, the, yes, rhubarb. the rhubarb. <laughs> uh, yeah, the hammer, the stirrup. Oh, yeah, yeah, The hammer, the anvil, the stirrup. I just think that those little bones really make life cool. Well, yeah, you're, you're also an audiophile. What'd you say? An audiophile. I can't hear you. Oh, boy. So George Brown is a tragic figure. He's driven to grief, and he he is not there during this exhumation. Um, but the people who, like you said, it was regionally uh, varied in terms of what kind of methods were used and 
who was expected to be present. So they dig up the mom. She died like 10 years ago. She's, her body's, her corpse is like totally decomposed. They're like, okay, probably not a vampire. They dig up the daughter, the mm-hmm. first daughter that mm-hmm. died. She died nine years ago, though. Totally decomposed. Yeah, probably not a vampire. Then they exhume Mercy Lena Brown, the daughter that's only died about two months ago. As I understand, she wasn't actually in the ground. She was in an, a, a tomb above the ground, I believe. Yes, yeah. The ground was frozen. Mm-hmm. They couldn't dig down. Right. She's in this above ground tomb. So they crack that open. Well, she's not very decomposed. Right. She's got the thing you're talking about where it looks like her fingernails and hair have been growing. She's, she's looked better, but she looks like she's in pretty good shape. It's about two months after her death. Yeah. And she's also got the signs of consumption, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, she's, she's wasted away. She's, she's maybe got rosy cheeks. Uh, everything that I've read sounds like the description would be super normal for someone that had died obviously tragically, but like under those conditions, that's like a super normal way for that corpse to look right then. Especially in the cold, very, very cold winters, you know, you're basically refrigerated. You're going to last a while. But the folks that are there that night decide, oh, that's definitely the vampire. Yeah, and they, and they, this is a really great point you brought up earlier. Uh, It may have been in part one. They probably don't use the word vampire. They probably use some other word, some something describing a spirit, maybe something that is a regional dialect lost to history, because the media of the time will go contemporaneous media, excuse me, will describe it to outsiders as vampirism. Right. But, but there's not a lot of evidence they said vampire. We do know for sure they decided something terrible was afoot and supernatural, and so according to the beliefs that they were practicing. Uh, Mercy's heart and liver were removed and burned. And then they took the ashes of what they burned, mixed it with water, and gave it to Edwin Brown, the, the boy, to drink. And they thought this would cure him of his affliction and prevent any, any of the undead from influencing him. This proved to be incorrect as he passed away two months later. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible story, but it really happened. And George Brown went along with it. And you know, they're all buried next to each other now. I mean, that whole family, that's still an active cemetery in Exeter. And and they're all there. I mean, I, I read one article that put it like, and Mercy's buried there between the father that had her exhumed and the brother that drank her heart and liver. That is the one other really common um cure solution that you see uh, in New England is, is was cutting out the vital organs. Do you know how many vital organs there are, Ben? How many vital organs are? Do you mean like in the world altogether or like the average human body? <laughs> I mean in a single human body. Well, it's interesting because the kidneys are vital organs, but they, they roll in a pair. So if we counted them as one, I'd say, let's see, liver, lungs, heart, brain. Does the does the pancreas make the list? Well, skin is an organ. No, everybody forgets about skin. Skin is an organ. The list that I pulled said the heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, and spleen. Spleen. The spleen, bro. The brain doesn't count. Nah, you don't need a brain. Oh, boy. no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, it's a term that I hear, and I, I, I've just mm-hmm. I've, I've wondered about. Um, I think you're right that a brain is pretty vital. I mean, Except for making this show. 
Yeah. Da, 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 da. So we're we're adding some levity here because we are talking about really disturbing stuff. And you can also see other cases like you mentioned, Alex, in Vermont with the case of Frederick Ransom. You can also see that they believed, at least in the case of the Brown family, they believed that they were exercising, you know, critical thinking. They didn't think anybody was acting crazy because they didn't do this to the corpses of the Marys. The corpses of the Marys appeared to have rotted and not to be preserved. And the Brown exhumations, as as you pointed out, even though this made Rhode Island known as the vampire capital of America or whatever the breathless headlines were. It's the Brown exhumations are just one of many more that were in the area around this time. And I appreciate that you pointed out Michael Bell's work saying, okay, I found over 80 things that somehow qualify as vampire rituals. And he also says, I think this started at least by 1784, if not earlier, and it persisted. This is the crazy part. It persisted all the way to 1892 after Coke found the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, excuse me, consumption. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I meant Monte Carlo. 
I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos, and the last one, God bless it, I just I I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally, but it, it still was like a a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 1892 is super modern. Right? I mean... There's phonograph records that are old, that old, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, f motion pictures are about to be a thing in a few years. Automobiles coming around pretty soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this, that, that's, that's just right around the corner. It seems like the media really had a field day with the Mercy Brown story. Yes. I mean, even still, mm -hmm. um, I read one, one place talking about, I don't know, you've been to Salem, Massachusetts? Briefly. They really, you know, sort of have, as a town, leaned into the witch trials thing is kind of a kitschy, you know, sort of tourist, tourist trap kind yeah. of. And Exeter's not like that at all with, the, as I understand, I've not been to Exeter, I've been to Salem, but mm -hmm. Exeter apparently does not lean into that uh, sort of direction at all. Though, like I said, the graves are still there. But the media at the time really seems to have had a field day with it. Lauded the word uh, vampire all around. Yeah, yeah. And in a way that may have harmed more than it helped, but it definitely had an effect on culture. And it's one that remains with us today. We know that, as you said, there were variations in what people thought was happening. There are variations in the way they tried to address it. But the things that were the things that were categorizing as vampire rituals all describe a situation where a grave was desecrated. That's exactly what happened. And there are things that people didn't even know about until like the 1990s when uh, I think it was some kids playing who originally discovered this mass grave in Griswold, Connecticut. And they found these bodies had, or the skeletons at least, had parts of, parts of their anatomy shattered and rearranged into those skull and crossbone patterns you mentioned. See, folks, we, we, we got there. That was, that was foreshadowing. That wasn't just our mutual love of pirates. You know, there's one, there one other thing that I, that I read about a symptom that, that people would, you know, think of uh, when, they, when they dig up the corpse and look at the corpse, one of the things that they would say, oh, that's a vampire, is if it looked bloated like it had just eaten. Yes, that would be the well-fed aspect, yeah. right? Yeah. Which would just be from what, like the gases of mm -hmm. like just natural decomposition as yeah. your body's breaking yeah. down? Yeah, probably gases produced by the, uh, I was going to say entities, but that was Helen's super, too supernatural. Gases produced by the very tiny things digesting. 
this is, yeah, this is unfortunate that gas does happen, but this is also before modern. Bino. Yes, it's before modern Bino. <laughs> Is Bino still count as modern? Don't know. Why did they name it Bino? <laughs> hey, bro, it's it's clearly memorable because I just dropped it in here. It's just I've never heard it not said it in an awkward way. <laughs> you know, maybe we just need some some to do our quiet storm voices and do a Bino commercial. Even then, it's tough. I feel like the commercials are some. Oh, should have taken Bino. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is. Um, this is interesting because for people who are outside of the New England area at this time, as you said, 1892 feels really surprisingly modern. People who are reading about this, because it does get a lot of headlines, they think it looks kind of primitive. A lot of, like a lot of folks in Europe and so on, they're saying, you know, we're in a new era. It's the 1800s. We're into science now. We're learning about the world. We have agreed as a civilization that this universe is both understandable and worth understanding what the heck is happening over there in, well, they probably didn't call them the colonies at that point, unless they were very stuck up and very British. It was a few years after the American Revolution. Yeah, I, you know, but it's like 30 a little less than there 30 are, years. There are some that will always call them the colonies. The colonies. Look at these. The primitives in the colonies have clearly been tainted by folklore. Yeah, uh, whatever the case was it, was, it was not seen as a normal thing. What we mean is there are not a lot of people in Western Europe at the time going, oh, yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, you got you to do it. got to dig them up, flip them over. It happens. I mean. That's that's the jam. No one was really saying that in Western Europe. And instead, they were saying this is they were describing it as uh, as a de-evolution of sorts, culturally, socially. They were saying this is like the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition. And it was lumped in with stories of werewolves and witches and other European folklore tall tales that were generally in Western Europe considered to be myths by that time, right? And there's this interesting piece of speculation, and maybe this is maybe this is where we start to draw to a close here, Alex. Did you hear that some folks believe this might have inspired the Dracula story? Remember in part one, we talked about how post-Bram Stoker vampires or vampirism in culture is very different from pre-Stoker. So I don't know. I, I like the theory. It's so it was so surprising to me that this predated Bram Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula because of the way that you, you really see it in the in the newspapers of the time, local papers, but also, you know, larger circulation papers banding about the word vampire apply to these cases. And I just figured that it was kind of maybe top of mind for people because because the novel was so famous, but the novel did come after, but it came really close on the heels. Right. So how quickly can one write a novel? And he was based where? Bram Stoker is from Ohio. Oh, right, right. Like yeah. Columbus, Cincinnati? Toledo? Uh, yeah, I think he's... Are you I, sure he's not from Pennsylvania? <laughs> I think he's a natty boy. No, we're kidding. We're kidding. Bram Stoker is an Irish author. Well, that's not funny. 
No, no. And that's kind of on him for not having the foresight to be born in a place that would be funnier in the context of this show. But so the idea, right, is that 1892 is when the the Mercy Brown story, well, it's when it happens. And it's also when the, the chatter is going on about it in the American newspapers. How quickly could he have like gotten that, ingested it, consumed it, and then, you know, manifested it into a novel and got it out? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there was a clipping from New York World in 1896 that was later found in Bram Stoker's papers. His theater company had been touring the U.S. at this time in 1896, Mm. so he probably ran into that reading just the local news. And his novel, Dracula, was published in 1897. So one of the big debates is how much time do you need to write a novel like that? That's enough time. You think so? Other people are arguing. They're they're arguing in favor of this, and they're saying, "Okay, how is Lena not the character of Lucy?" Right. They say uh, take Mercy and Lena, and you sort of squash them together, and you get Lucy. Right. Eighteen ninety seven. That was close enough. Yeah, and also it's uh, it's very common for fiction authors, novelists, or short story writers to take inspiration from real life events you know it's uh i would say that's more often than not that's what actually happens the interesting thing here also the optimistic thing is that people aren't digging up their loved ones anymore for uh on suspicion of vampirism or supernatural nefarious activities yeah just to just to see them yep nothing creepy about that <laughs> and and generally that's believed that that is because science came in like science assumed uh, a more a more prominent role and was able to explain some of what led to these infections what led to the communication of consumption and then knowing that knowing this explanation people were in a better place to understand and combat it and that is Luckily, overall, a happy ending to this week's series on the New England Vampire Panic. And we talked about some grisly stuff, Alex. I really appreciate you hanging out today. I love that we were able to do a two-parter. Thank you as well, uh, Mr. Lowell Brilliante, our guest super producer. Ben, I, I have a nagging question. Though. Yeah, yeah. There's something about this that, I, that doesn't sit, like, I just don't understand. Okay. I'm Edwin Brown. Yes. I've got my sisters. You've cut my sister's heart and liver out. Mm -hmm. You've burned them to ash. Maybe I inhaled the smoke as you were burning them. You've mixed that ash into water. You've made a tonic with it. Maybe put a sprig of fresh mint or whatever. Sure. And you've given that to me and I drink that. Yeah. What did I get? Like, if it was going to work, what is the sort of the logic and the folk magic? There's this idea that's kind of like sympathetic magic. You're kind of treating like with like. So you are uh, taking, I mean, it's it's the old idea that the the poison or the source of an illness somehow transformed or going through certain rituals or treatments can itself become the cure for that condition. Mm. Or within, within the poison, we find the antidote right. kind of idea. That now I don't know the specifics in terms of why it needed to be the heart and the liver rather than say the lungs and the kidneys. That's a good question. Uh, but that 
it, it does seem to have a logic. The idea is that by digesting or consuming some essence of a thing, you are maybe inoculating yourself against it. But that's such a sciencey way to think of it, though. Like, what's the what's the spiritual angle on that? What's the metaphysical angle on it? I'd be very interested to hear the metaphysical angle. And I think maybe it's something we look into, right? Because we're going to hang out a little bit after this. So let's look into that together. I don't know about anybody else, but this has certainly uh, worked up an appetite for me. Quite a thirst. Yes, quite a thirst, I would say. And not just for knowledge, but of course, knowledge. Human blood. Oh, <laughs> yes. Sorry. How much have you drank at one time? Uh, do let us know. Uh, ridiculous at iheartmedia.com. You can also contact us on social media. But while you're on the internet, may I recommend uh, may I recommend checking out Lowell Brillante's show that he's working on when he when he's not hanging out here with us. It is Prodigy. It is available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Uh, Alex, you also have a show. It's ephemeral. It's kick-ass. I'm not just saying that because my pal Noel and I have appeared on a couple of episodes. But more importantly, we want to know why, why, what is the, what is the metaphysical logic perhaps behind this, the specificity of these vampire rituals? I don't know. Alex, Saturday Night Live rules dictate that the next time you're back, it'll be your fifth time guest hosting, which means we have to give you a special jacket. Cool. Yeah. Well, this, well, this was my third time. We just did two episodes. Well, it that took counts so as four. Okay. <laughs> that counts as four. Just That's think true. about what kind of jacket you want and remember that special doesn't necessarily mean great. <laughs> mean, I should say that Ephemeral's got Halloween stuff all October. Fantastic. We did a thing about her carving Carnival of Souls. We're doing a some, yes. we're doing another storybook adaptation thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really great creepy story about demonic possession in a scrapbook, which I know sounds wonky as hell, but like it's it's a classic story. Really, really scary. Are you like to say that? Yeah, like, we'll beep it. Okay, thank you. Bleeping scary. <laughs> uh, yes, and I can personally vouch for that episode of Carnival of Souls. It is one of my favorite horror movies, and I think you will be surprised to learn uh, just how deeply Alex and Trevor and Max Williams uh, work together like how deeply you all delved into that story. Uh, so I, I say that not just as a friend, but as a fan, do check out the show. It is free wherever you get your podcast. That's going to be all for us today. Happy Halloween, everyone. Stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you again real soon. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? 
We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.